Chapter Twenty Seven A of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Twenty Seven A. Lincoln's second presidential term, his attitude toward it, rival candidates for the nomination, Chase's Achillean wrath, harmony restored, the Baltimore Convention, decision not to swap horses while crossing a stream, the summer of 1864. The year 1864 witnessed another presidential election and one which was attended by the most novel and extraordinary circumstances. It was held while a considerable portion of the people were engaged in armed rebellion against the authority of the national government, and it was not participated in by the voters of several entire states. Aside from these unique features, it marked a most critical epoch in the history of the country, and in that of Abraham Lincoln as well. The policy and acts of the administration even the question of the further prosecution of the war, were to be submitted to the sovereign tribunal of the people, and with their verdict would be recorded also the popular measure of approval or disapproval of President Lincoln. Those who knew him best during his first official term pronounce him singularly free from plans and calculations regarding his own political future. He was too absorbed in public cares and duties, too nearly crushed by the great burdens resting upon him, to give thought or attention to questions of personal ambition. It had never been his aim, during his presidential life, to look far ahead. He was content to deal wisely and soberly with important questions as they arose from day to day and hour to hour, to adapt himself and his actions to the exigencies of the present, and in that way earn security for the future. He himself said, using a forcible and apt illustration borrowed from his early life. The pilots on our western rivers steer from point to point, as they call it, setting the course of the boat no farther than they can see, and that is all I propose to do in the great problems that are set before me. Such a policy as that outlined by Lincoln, embraced in his homely and characteristic phrase of pegging away, caused him to be greatly misunderstood and even distrusted in some quarters. As the time for the new election drew near, there was very pronounced dissatisfaction with him, particularly in New England. It was said of him, among other things, that he lacked the essential qualities of a leader. Mr. Henry Greenleaf Pearson, the biographer of Governor Andrew of Massachusetts, illuminates this point in a few instructive sentences. To comprehend this objection, which to us seems so astonishingly wide of the mark, says Mr. Pearson, we must realize that whenever a New Englander of that generation uttered the word leader, his mind's eye was filled with the image of Daniel Webster. Even those who called the fallen statesman Ichabod could not forget his commanding presence, his lofty tone about affairs of state, his sonorous professions of an ideal, his whole ex-cathedra attitude. All these characteristics supplied the aristocratic connotation of the word leader. Of the broad democratic meaning of the term, the world had as yet received no demonstration. That Lincoln was in very truth the new birth of a new soil, Lowell, with the advantage of literary detachment, was one of the first to discover and to proclaim, both in his political essays and in the splendid stanzas of the commemoration ode. While Lincoln seemingly gave little heed to the question of a second presidential term, 
It must not be inferred that he was indifferent regarding it. His nature was one of those strong ones which, though desiring approbation, are yet able to live without it. His whole life had been a schooling in self-reliance and independence, and the last three years especially had rendered him an adept in that stern philosophy. But he was thoroughly human, and deep down in his nature was a craving for human sympathy and support, knowing that he had done his best and was entitled to the full approval of his countrymen, he no doubt felt that it would be a pleasant thing to receive that approval by being called to serve them for another term. To one friend he remarked, using his old figure of the people's attorney, "'If the people think I have managed their case for them well enough to trust me to carry it up to the next term, I am sure I shall be glad to take it.' He evidently dreaded the rebuke that would be implied in a failure to be renominated. Yet it seemed unbecoming to him, in the critical condition of the country, to make any personal effort to that end. To these considerations were added his extreme weariness, and longing for release from his oppressive burdens. He was also, as Mr. Wells records in his diary, greatly importuned and pressed by cunning intrigues. From these various complications, Lincoln's embarrassment and perplexity as the time for holding the Republican convention drew near were extreme. A journalistic friend, Mr. J. M. Winchell, who had a lengthy conversation with him on the subject, gives what is no doubt a correct idea of his state of mind at that period. "'Mr. Lincoln received me,' says Mr. Winchell, kindly and courteously, but his manner was quite changed. It was not now the country about which his anxiety prevailed, but himself. There was an embarrassment about him which he could not quite conceal. I thought it proper to state at the outset that I wished simply to know whatever he was free to tell me in regard to his own willingness or unwillingness to accept a renomination. The reply was a monologue of an hour's duration, and one that wholly absorbed me, as it seemed to absorb himself. He remained seated nearly all the time. He was restless, often changing position, and occasionally, in some intense moment, wheeling his body around in his chair and throwing a leg over the arm. This was the only grotesque thing I recollect about him. His voice and manner were very earnest, and he uttered no jokes and told no anecdotes. He began by saying that as yet he was not a candidate for renomination. He distinctly denied that he was a party to any effort to that end notwithstanding I knew that there were movements in his favor in all parts of the northern states. These movements were, of course, without his prompting, as he positively assured me that with one or two exceptions he had scarcely conversed on the subject with his most intimate friends. He was not quite sure whether he desired a renomination. Such had been the responsibility of the office, so oppressive had he found its cares, so terrible its perplexities that he felt as though the moment when he could relinquish the burden and retire to private life would be the sweetest he could possibly experience. But, he said, he would not deny that a re-election would also have its gratification to his feelings. He did not seek it, nor would he do so. He did not desire it for any ambitious or selfish purpose. But after the crisis the country was passing through under his presidency, and the efforts he had made conscientiously to discharge the duties imposed upon him, it would be a very sweet satisfaction to him to know that he had secured the approval of his fellow-citizens, and earned the highest testimonial of confidence they could bestow. 
This was the gist of the hour's monologue, and I believe he spoke sincerely. His voice, his manner, gave his modest and sensible words a power of conviction. He seldom looked me in the face while he was talking. He seemed almost to be gazing into the future. I am sure it was not a pleasant thing for him to seem to be speaking in his own behalf. For himself he affirmed that he should make no promises of office to any one as an inducement for support. If nominated and elected, he should be grateful to his friends, but the interests of the country must always be first considered. The principal candidates talked of as successors to Lincoln were Secretary Chase, General Fremont, and General Grant. Of the latter, Lincoln said, with characteristic frankness and generosity, if he could be more useful as president in putting down the rebellion i would be content he is pledged to our policy of emancipation and the employment of negro soldiers and if this policy is carried out it will not make much difference who is president but general grant's good sense prevailed over his injudicious advisers and he promptly refused to allow his name to be presented to the convention the most formidable candidate for the Republican nomination was Secretary Chase. The relations between him and the President had not latterly been very harmonious, and the breach was greatly widened by a bitter personal assault on Mr. Chase by General F. P. Blair, a newly elected congressman from Missouri, made on the floor of the House about the middle of April, under circumstances which led Mr. Chase to believe that the President inspired, or at least approved, the attack. Mr. Chase was very angry, and an open rupture between his friends and those of the President was narrowly averted. Mr. Riddle, congressman from Mr. Chase's state, Ohio, relates that on the evening after General Blair's offensive speech he was to accompany Mr. Chase on a visit to Baltimore. "'I was shown,' says Mr. Riddle, "'to the Secretary's private car, where I found him alone, and in a frenzy of rage.' A copy of Blair's speech had been shown him at the station, and I was the sole witness of his Achillean wrath. He threatened to leave the train at once and send the President his resignation, but was persuaded to go on to Baltimore. He wished to forward his resignation from there, but concluded to withhold it till his return to Washington the next day. At Baltimore, continues Mr. Riddle, I excused myself and took the return train for Washington. I did not overestimate the danger to the Union cause. It would be a fatal error to defeat Mr. Lincoln at the Baltimore Convention. Yet how could he succeed, with the angry resignation of Mr. Chase and the defection of his friends, the powerful and aggressive radicals? Reaching Washington, I went to the White House direct. I knew the President could not have been a party to Blair's assault, and I wanted his personal assurances to communicate to Mr. Chase at the earliest moment. I was accompanied by Judge Spaulding, an eminent member of the House, fully sharing Mr. Chase's confidence, and somewhat cool toward the President. We found Mr. Lincoln drawn up behind his table, with papers before him, quite grim, evidently prepared for the battle which he supposed awaited him. Without taking a seat, hat in hand, I stated frankly, not without emotion, the condition of affairs, the public danger, my entire confidence in him, my sole purpose there, the reason of Judge Spaulding's presence, and that we were there in no way as representatives of Mr. Chase. Mr. Lincoln was visibly affected. The tones of confidence, sympathy, personal regard, were strangers to him at that time. 
Softening, almost melting, he came round to us, shook our hands again and again, returned to his place, and standing there took up and opened out from their remote origin the whole web of matters connected with the present complication. He spoke an hour, calm, clear, direct, simple. He reprehended Blair severely, and stated that he had no knowledge of his speech until after Blair left Washington. We were permitted to communicate this to Mr. Chase. He was satisfied with the President's explanation, and at the Baltimore Convention my large acquaintance enabled me to open the way for Governor Dennison of Ohio to become its presiding officer. All recognized the good effect of the organization of that body by the friends of Mr. Chase. The National Republican Convention, which met at Baltimore on the 8th of June, adopted resolutions heartily approving the course of the administration and especially the policy of emancipation, and completed its good work by nominating Abraham Lincoln as its candidate for president for another term. Andrew Johnson of Tennessee was nominated for vice-president. That Lincoln was gratified at this proof of confidence and esteem, there can be no doubt. In his acceptance of the nomination, he said, with the most delicate modesty, I view this call to a second term as in no wise more flattering to myself than as an expression of the public judgment that I may better finish a difficult work than could one less severely schooled to the task. And with characteristic humor, he thanked a visiting delegation for their good opinion of him, saying, I have not permitted myself to conclude that I am the best man in the country, but I am reminded of the old Dutch farmer who remarked to a companion that it was not best to swap horses while crossing a stream. In July 1864 great excitement and alarm were occasioned in Washington by a body of Confederate cavalry under General Early, who actually attacked the fortifications of the city, cut off its railroad communication with the north, and ravaged the country about with fire and sword. For several days skirmishing was going on between the raiders and the troops in our fortifications. The fact that the President himself was under fire from the enemy on this occasion gave the episode a decided thrill of realism. He, with other government officials, largely no doubt from motives of curiosity, visited the scene of the disturbance and witnessed the miniature but sometimes spirited engagements. Among these visitors was Secretary Wells, who thus records his experiences, Diary, July twelfth, eighteen sixty four. Rode out to day to Fort Stevens. Looking out over the valley below, where the continual popping of pickets was going on, I saw a line of our men lying close near the bottom of the valley. Senator Wade came up beside me. We went into the fort, where we found the President, who was sitting in the shade, his back against the parapet, toward the enemy. As the firing from the fort ceased, our men ran to the charge, and the rebels fled. We could see them running across the fields, seeking the woods on the brow of the opposite hills. Below, we could see here and there some of our own men, bearing away their wounded comrades. Occasionally a bullet from some long-range rifle passed over our heads. It was an interesting and exciting spectacle. Another account says, President Lincoln visited the lines in person and refused to retire, although urged to do so. He exposed himself freely at Port Stevens, and a surgeon standing alongside of him was wounded by a ball which struck a gun and glanced. A gentleman named Neal, who lived in the country, about twelve miles from the city, gives a vivid conception of the imminence of the danger. After breakfast on Tuesday, July 12th, says Mr. Neal, 
I went as usual in a railway car to the city, and before noon my house was surrounded by General Bradley Johnson's insurgent cavalry, who had made an attempt to capture the New York Express train, and had robbed the country store nearby of its contents. The presence of the cavalry stopped all travel by railroad, and Senator Ramsey of Minnesota, who happened to be in Washington, could find no way to the north except by descending the Potomac to its mouth, and then ascending Chesapeake Bay to Baltimore. While the cavalry was in the fields around my home, the enemy's infantry was marching toward the capital by what was called the Seventh Street Road, and they set fire to the residence of Honorable Montgomery Blair, who had been Postmaster General. As I sat in my room at the President's, the smoke of the burning mansion was visible, but business was transacted with as much quietness as if the foe were hundreds of miles distant. Mr. Fox, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, had in a private note informed the President that if there should be a necessity for him to leave the city, he would find a steamer in readiness at the wharf at the foot of Sixth Street. About one o'clock in the afternoon of each day of the skirmishing, the President would enter his carriage and drive to the forts in the suburbs, and watch the soldiers repulse the invaders. For several days Washington was in great danger of capture. Nearly all the forces had been sent forward to reinforce Grant, and the city was comparatively defenseless. But its slender garrison, mostly raw recruits, held out gallantly under the encouragement of the President, until Grant sent a column to attack Early, who promptly withdrew, and the crisis was over. This was the last time the enemy threatened the national capital. From that time he had enough to do to defend Richmond. Lincoln labored under deep depression during the summer of 1864. The Army of the Potomac achieved apparently very little in return for its enormous expenditure of blood and treasure. Until the victories of Farragut in Mobile Bay late in August, and Sherman at Atlanta a few days later, the gloom was unrelieved. The people were restless and impatient, and vented their displeasure upon the administration, holding it responsible for all reverses and disappointments, and giving grudging praise for success at any point. The popular displeasure was increased by the President's call for 500,000 additional troops, May-July 18th, a measure which some of his strongest friends deprecated, as likely to jeopardize his re-election in November. "'It is not a personal question at all,' said Lincoln. "'It matters not what becomes of me. We must have the men. If I go down, I intend to go like the Cumberland, with my colors flying.' To the question, "'When is the war to end?' he said, "'Surely I feel as deep an interest in this question as any other can. But I do not wish to name a day, a month, or a year, when it is to end.' We accepted this war for an object, a worthy object, and the war will end when that object is attained. Under God, I hope it never will end until that time. The President's mind seemed constantly weighted with anxiety as to the movements and fortunes of our armies in the field. He could not sleep at night under this crushing load. Secretary Wells's diary gives frequent instances of this. Once, after an engagement between the Western armies, the President says Mr. Wells came to me with the latest news. He was feeling badly, tells me a dispatch was sent to him at the soldier's home last night, shortly after he got asleep, and so disturbed him that he had no more rest, but arose and came to the city and passed the remainder of the night awake and watchful. 
At another time, after a desperate battle between Grant and Lee, Mr. Wells says, The President came into my room about 1 p.m. and told me he had slept none last night. He lay down for a short time on the sofa in my room, and detailed all the news he had gathered. End of chapter 27a Recording by Bill Borst